they tell us that finances are a major culprit in 50% of all marital breakdowns. And it doesn't take a rocket scientist to, to, to figure this out. I mean, I, here I am. I've got my, my philosophy of, of finance, however it was derived. But I've, I've got it, and it, it is, my values are meshed with it. It dictates how I spend and how I save and how I invest. Uh, my understanding of what is a necessity and what is, is a need or is tied up there. It may not be a well-articulated philosophy or even a well-thought-out one, but it's mine and it works for me. And better than that, it's the right one, right? Well, then I meet you. And you have got a philosophy of finance. And it has been with you. It's been shaped through your whole life. It, it is dictating how you, you live your life. Your values are meshed with it. It shapes how you give and how you invest and what's a necessity and what's a need. And it may not be well articulated or well thought out, but it works for you. And it's the right one. Well, then we get married, right? And we do the one thing. and We put all our stuff in one bank account and we're happy. For a very short time, right? Because in time, what's going to happen is what is a need and what is a necessity. It starts to come to the forefront and how we're going to give and how we're going to invest and how we're going to spend. And suddenly the sparks fly huge. And at that point, we can do one of several different things. We can try to manipulate the other person, right, to get them to, to see it our way, the right way, of course. And so it might be anger or slamming the door or squealing the tires or the silent treatment or any of those ways. Tears, we, with things we use to try to get the other person to see it our way. Or we might decide to go on the sly and be a little deceptive. Not that anybody here would do this, but, you know, have a slush fund labeled something else that we could spend and do with what we desire all the same. Or we might, on our best days, meet the other person and say, listen. We've got to come to some agreement on here, so I'll give part, you give part, and we'll be able to live under one, one roof. Now, here's the deal. Sparks or no sparks, question you have to ask, though, is, is my personal view of finance God's view of finance? Now, just because there may be no sparks does not necessarily mean that it is. And we, we, we need to ask ourselves this, this question for, for a couple of reasons. One is, uh, you know as well as I do, if you were to take a chicken breast and stick it in a bowl of you know, teriyaki and garlic and olive oil and let it sit there in the fridge for a couple of days and then put it on the grill, it's going to taste remarkably like teriyaki and olive oil and garlic because it's been marinating. Well, you and I have been marinating in a culture, a very stuffaholic culture our whole life. What has been our babysitters? The marketers have, and television, the commercials, wonderful commercials, the ads, lots of dollars go into the ads. And these are the things that have shaped us. And to think you, ha- you can sit in the marinade and not end up tasting like it a little bit is a bit naive. Uh, Paul Stiles in his book, Is the American Dream Killing You? Several, uh, several statistics here. Let's listen to him. He says, the average American discards nearly a ton of trash every year which is twice as much as a Western European and nearly three times as much as a Japanese. He says between 1973 and 2000, the average American worker has added five weeks of work per year to her schedule. And he would go on to say because he needed the money. In the 1980s, the average American saved between six and eight percent. Um, today, they save between three and four percent, significantly less than other industrialized countries. Uh, Japan, for, for instance, averages 13%. Germany averaged 12%. And France averaged 15%. And 
1995 alone, the credit card companies sent out 17 pre-approved credit card solicitations to every American between 18 and 64. My 16-year-old son just received his first solicitation this, this past week. Um, they're, get, they're getting a good jump on it now. Between 89 and 2001, credit card debt in America almost tripled from $238 billion to $692 billion, with the average American family experiencing a 53% increase. And then this is, I find this one most interesting. In adjusted dollars, the two-income family today makes 75% more money than a single-income family in 1973, but has $800 less discretionary dollars. Isn't that amazing? Juliet Storr, she wrote a book titled The Overspent American. And in that, she says that 30% of all Americans who make in excess to 100000 a year claim that they do not have enough money to buy the things that they need. We live in the greatest stuffaholic uh, culture the world has ever seen. We're marinating in that. That is coming at us on a regular basis, but it's not just outside us. Uh, Jesus lets us know in Mark 7 that that which makes a man unclean, you know this, right? It's not that which is on the outside going in, but that which is on the inside. He says it's from the heart. And when he talks about the heart, he gives a litany of vices, one of which is greed. It's, it's like our, our spiritual DNA got messed up at, at the fall and, and greed is there and the marketers are just pouring fuel on the fire that's already there. Now, why this is such a big issue, obviously, right now for where we live, is that it's no secret that the world is in a financial crisis. Whole countries claiming bankruptcy. It's no secret that the United States of America is in a financial crisis. Uh, between the debt issue in Washington, between la- last week was the worst week on Wall Street since 2008. It's no question that our city is in financial crisis. Uh, and if we were to take it down to a personal level, who in here has not been impacted or affected by the finances, the financial system in the world today? You know, there is a major financial stress. CNN did a, a survey several years back where they, they surveyed 16 in 16 different countries. And the number one cause for stress throughout the world was finances. Now, a good thing with this, believe it or not, yeah, there's something good here, is when things are bad, are good, you know, when, when life is going great financially, we really have a tendency not to stop and say, God, what's the deal? We kind of don't know, want, want to know what his view is of finances because we're afraid he might ask us for something that we don't want to give at that point. But when we're feeling the pain... And we're saying, oh, God, God, what's what's up? And we might he might have our attention right now. We might be more open to listen. And that's why we're, we're doing this, this series for the next three weeks on confessions of a stuffaholic, because this is a very, very, very important issue uh, to God. You know, Jesus gave 38 parables. Sixteen of them dealt with finances. Now, that's that's Fascinating when you think Jesus has got to cover evangelism and prayer and character of God and kindness and loving your neighbor. He's got a lot of stuff he's got to go over. But but almost half of his parables, he focuses on finances. About 500 verses in Scripture deal with faith. About 500 verses in Scripture deal with prayer. About 2,000 verses in Scripture deal with finances. This is a very important topic to God. Now, don't, hang on, we're not going to take this like massive offering. You know, I'm not jazzing you guys up for this big offering. All right, there, so we come forward. No, we're not going on that road. Because Scripture, more often than not, when it talks about finances, 
It's not talking about giving. It doesn't talk about how to give it. It talks about how to live it. You know, God wants you and I to understand finances from his perspective. And he knows that this is an area we could be tripped on very, very easily. It's constantly warfare for us. And so God is going to give us a lot of, of text on this issue. Now, hang on. You got follow me for a second. Don't be at a place where you're thinking right now. I mean, I wish I had more, but right now we're OK. Therefore, I must be OK. Don't, don't go there. I mean, just the fact that he has given us so much copy on this. It would behoove you and I to stop and say, you know what? This is so important to God. Maybe I haven't received whole sanctification on this issue. Maybe I need to be transformed a little bit more. Maybe I need to see things just a little more clearly through his eyes in this regard. And this is the goal of these next few weeks. That's what we're about. Because we know, and you know, that, that it seems where we're living right now... Uh, the prices of food keep going higher. Prices of everything keep going higher, outpacing any pay increases we, we might hope to get. The uh, deductions from your paycheck go higher. The co-pays go higher. Meanwhile, what insurance is going to pay for goes lower. And, and the financial stress can just redline and send us there. And so, given all of that, it's a good time for us to stop and say, God, what is it that you have for us? So what we're going to do today is we're going to start this, this, it's only a three-week series, but we're going to start looking at three stuffaholics in Scripture. And what we want to do, the goal here, is to see if there is a principle in each of these scenarios, each of these case studies, that we might be able to uh, put into our own lives. And so the first stuffaholic that we want to look at is probably the most famous stuffaholic, at least in the New Testament, the rich young ruler. So turn with me to Matthew chapter 19. Matthew 19. And we'll be beginning in verse 16 of Matthew 19. It's, y'all looking, it's page 1499 if you've got the right Bible. Okay, page, there we go. Now a man came up to Jesus and asked, Teacher, what good thing must I do to get eternal life? Why do you ask me about what is good? Jesus replied, there is only one who is good. If you want to enter life, obey the commandments. Which ones? The man inquired. Jesus replied, do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not give false testimony. Honor your father and mother and love your neighbor as yourself. All these I have kept, the young man said. What do I still lack? Jesus answered, if you want to be perfect, go sell your possessions and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. Then... Come, follow me. When the young man heard this, he went away sad because he had great wealth. A couple observations on this. Notice, Jesus did not ask for this man's stuff, right? He wasn't looking for this man's uh, uh, possessions, this man's treasure. Matter of fact, I can't imagine or I can't think of a single time in Scripture where Jesus asked for somebody's finances, for someone's things. Now, he, he, this was a great opportunity to do so, though, wasn't it? I mean, he probably looked at this guy and could have said, you know what? You've got a lot of resources. We've got a lot of vision that need resources. You know, maybe we can be a team here. Maybe we can click up and we, you could help fund this, this enterprise. And we're going to try to save the world. This is the big thing here. You can help us out. But Jesus did want him on the team. But it's interesting. Not until after the guy was a pauper, right? 
So Jesus was not asking for, for this guy's stuff. He did not want this man's treasure. But instead, second observation, is he didn't want this man's treasure, wasn't asking for his things, but instead was giving him an incredible opportunity. We mentioned this a couple of weeks ago, that what this guy is being offered here is something only 12 other people in the history of the world would ever be offered. It was to be his, his apostle, one of the 13 apostles. Now, can you imagine this? To be, if Jesus, Jesus offered you to be discipled by the Son of God. That's, that's not a bad deal. And if this guy would have taken him up on this, he could have seen miracles. Maybe he could have been a part of the miracles. Maybe this guy would have walked on water. And who knows if the Holy Spirit wouldn't have tapped this guy on the shoulder to write a gospel. And he could have saw Jesus crucified and then saw him raised from the dead and maybe touch his wounds. And this guy would have been one of the guys in the book of Acts that would have preached and thousands came to know Christ. He would have seen miracle. He would have been a, a, a massive patriarch to the faith. God was offering him an incredible life of significance. But what did he do? He turned it down. He shut it down. Now, you've got to ask yourself what's running through this guy's mind. And here's the principle that we want to touch on. And that's this. God does not want anything from you, but everything for you. That's an Andy Stanleyism, But that's a great principle, isn't it? God does not want anything from you, but everything for you. He knows that in your heart, you've got a, a solo compartment. Heart can only hold one thing. And as long as it's holding stuff, it's going to keep you from the intimacy with him, from the life of significance. That would be the reason. You know, Mark chapter 10 is an interesting parallel place. Jesus is talking about this very man and says, Mark adds an interesting word here. Mark says that Jesus looked on him and loved him. We think sometimes Jesus was kind of like using this guy as a pawn in this teaching opportunity for his apostles. No, no Jesus really loved this guy. And it's his love that drove himself to realize what was in this guy's heart and said, you know, if you want to be one of my apostles, buddy, you've got to do what Peter, James, and John did. They left their nets. If you want to be one of my apostles, I want you to be one, but you've got to do what Matthew did. You have to leave the tax gatherer's booth. You have to leave that. that can't, you can't be in your heart. Now, he goes on in, in Matthew 6 to define this a little bit further. Matthew 6, verse 19, he says, Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where moth and rust do not destroy and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Then he gives a parable, kind of an interesting parable. He says, The eye is the lamp of the body. If your eyes are good, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light within you is darkness, how great is the darkness? What he means by all that is that if our eyes are working right, we take in light and seen properly, we are able to navigate our bodies through life and not bang into things and not get hurt. We're okay. But if our eyes aren't working well, if we can't see well, we can get ourselves into trouble. How many times have you got up out of the bed in the middle of the night? You can't see very well. 
You know, you step on the dog, you trip over the shoes, you bang on the wall, you knock the pitcher down, you hear the grass, the glass smash, you know, you lose your sanctification. All these kind of things are going on. Happens in the pastor's house, right? <laughs> yeah, Teresa would stay in bed because we wouldn't have these issues, right? But, but this is, happens all the time. She's not here today. She's, it's all right. But the, but the idea, of course, in what Jesus is trying to say here, is this issue is so important on finances. It's so important. You have to see this clearly. Because if you don't see it clearly, this has the potential for messing up all of your life. You can get a lot of other things straight. But if you don't see this one clearly, it's going to mess things up. Then he goes on, verse 24. It says, no one can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other. Or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God. You'd think you'd say God and Baal, right? God and Dagon. You cannot serve both God and money. He knows that his number one competitor, he knows there's really no other gods, but his number one competitor is money. The number one thing that can take away intimacy from him. The number one thing that can block our relationship with him is finances. That's, that's the number one challenge you and I, you and I will have. So the, the, the principle that he doesn't want anything from us, like he just needs stuff. I mean, if he wanted stuff from us, he'd take it, right? He's God. He can do that. And it doesn't matter how much you have. Probably if you took it all, it's not going to increase the net worth of heaven very much. And it doesn't matter how exquisite your stuff is. You may have some collector things and some original art, whatever it is. I'm guessing heaven's already been decorated. And probably our stuff, best as it may be, is probably going to be considered cheap junk trinkets in heaven. Don't you think? God doesn't need our stuff. He doesn't want it. He just knows that that's what keeps us from knowing him. From having a life of significance. Second stuffaholic we want to look at. The most famous stuffaholic in the Old Testament. Solomon. So if you've got your Bibles. Look to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. We don't get an Ecclesiastes very often. But my goodness. A hard book sometimes. But an incredible book. Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And we're going to start... In verse 4 of Ecclesiastes 2. Uh, I think Solomon wrote it. He really never identifies himself in here, but uh, just but most all scholars think that, that, that it was Solomon. He says in verse 4, I undertook a great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of, groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of kings and provinces. I acquired men and women singers. This guy owned choirs, right? And a harem as well, the delights of the hearts of man. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. And I refused my heart no pleasure. This guy had it all, didn't he? Incredible unlimited resources and zero accountability. What could you do? I, I, he did it all. But, but after he got it all, he says this, verse 11. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done... 
and what I had toiled to achieve. Everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Here's the the principle. The principle is consumption does not equal contentment. Or a full closet doesn't equal a full heart. Or a full garage doesn't equal a full heart. A full bank account doesn't equal a full heart. Stuff acts like a pacifier, doesn't it? This is where our culture is in many ways. You know, the baby's crying, didn't eat for a long time, whatever the issue is, but the kid is always crying. And so you grab the pacifier and you stick it in his mouth. And the kid begins to suck on it. But then he realizes, hang on, whoa, 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 I'm being tricked here. This is not satisfying me. So he spits it out. So what do you do? You grab the thing, you lick it off, you stick it back in his mouth. And so he sucks a little bit more. And he says, hey, 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 no, wait a minute, time out. Something's not working here. This is not right. So he spits it out again and you grab it and you stick it back in his mouth. And on and on and on the routine goes. This is the way we are in many ways. I believe that often we're searching for the contentment and the peace that only comes from understanding forgiveness with God, that, understand, that is, comes from understanding a, a walk with Him, knowing His grace. But how do you get that? Well, if you listen to the world, well, you get it by bigger and brighter and sharper and nicer. And so we go get the nicer, bigger, brighter thing. And it's really cool when you get it, isn't it? I mean, it is for me. I have a blast. You open it up, you pull the styrofoam. It's just nice and it's cool. And man, I can't believe it. Just like on television. And it's wonderful stuff. But then what happens next year? Right. They come out with a new model and they've changed the body style. And this one is really cool. Better than mine. And the neighbor's got this one. And the guy at work who makes less than me has got this one. And so we spit, we spit the thing out. We've got to go get something else to satisfy because it used to satisfy, but it just doesn't anymore. Or there's something comes out with more megapixels or more megabytes or more. It's 5G now. And we're going, oh, no, the thing I had just doesn't cut it anymore. I'm so deprived. And so we, we have to go out and get the next thing. And we have to continually get in this, this pattern of acquisition and consumption to satisfy, to bring about contentment. But, but you know that this, just, that this, this desire for, for, for acquisition is just a treadmill, right? And it's going to take everything we got and we run and we run and we run and we run and when we get to the end, when we finally have to shut off, we've got nowhere because it's given us nothing because consumption does not equal contentment. Now, the wild thing with this passage and what's so amazing to me about this text is Solomon wrote this. Now, Solomon started off well, didn't he? Remember 1 Kings 3? And Solomon, he just becomes king. And that night, God comes to him and says, name it Solomon and I'll give it to you. And Solomon says, wisdom. Lord, I need to be able to discern. I'm in a leadership position and I don't have a clue what I'm doing. Would you give me discernment? And then God, it's very interesting what he says. He says, because you did not ask for riches, because he knows that's a key temptation, I'm going to give them to you. Solomon started off with that thing in his heart. That one compartment was filled with a love and a desire for God. But somewhere along the way, I don't know what happened. He pulled that out, set God not too terribly far away. You could still see him, but it was replaced with this desire of acquisition. Because maybe he was listening to the marketers. I don't know what happened here. But I wonder if some of us, maybe we started off well, who knows how long back. But in time... We saw how much this was going to cost us. And we took him out of that center spot. And we didn't place him far away because, I mean, we're still here, right? We, 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 we can see him, but what's been replaced in our heart 
It's really that desire for acquisition. That's what's driving us. And to the extent that it pleases him, good. But that's really what drives us. You know, I'm not a poem guy. But Edwin Arlington wrote a poem a while back uh, called Richard Corey. Very telling poem. He says this. It says, whenever Richard Corey went downtown, we people on the pavement looked at him. He was a gentleman from soul to crown, clean favored and imperially slim. And he was always quietly arrayed, and he was always human when he talked, but still he fluttered impulses when he, or pulses when he said good morning, and he glittered when he walked. And he was rich, yes, richer than a king, and admirably schooled in every grace. And fine, we thought that he was everything to make us wish that we were in his place. And so on we worked and waited for the light, and went without the meat and cursed the bread. And Richard Corey, one calm summer night, went home and put a bullet through his head. Richard Corey came to understand what Solomon understood. That as long as there's bigger and brighter and shinier and newer out there, there's always something to keep you running. But once you get it all, you get to the top of Everest, you know, you can't, you can't enjoy the view. You're at the top, but the cold wind is blinding you. And you realize, I strove my whole life to get here. For this peace, for this contentment. And it's not there because consumption does not equal contentment. And what the author of Ecclesiastes is going to tell you and I is, is your life is worth more than a pursuit of things. Don't waste your life seeking consumption. Don't look for contentment there because you're never, ever going to find it. The, the, the first principle, if we're trying to get the baseline this morning, understanding principles for, for personal finance, is that God doesn't want anything from us, but everything for us. The second principle is that consumption does not equal contentment, regardless of what the marketers say. And the third principle, to that, that we're going to look to the second stuff of Hulk in the Old Testament, King David. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to First Chronicles, First Chronicles 29. And I got to be careful about labeling David a stuffaholic. Maybe he wasn't a stuffaholic. I got to throw that out here on the front end. But he certainly had the stuff. Uh, by the way, let me let me toss this out as well. This is a good place for a, a caveat. Um, we we realize that stuff is not wrong. Correct. Treasure is not wrong. There's not a, a godliness line somewhere, you know, dependent on quality or quantity. You know, uh, uh, for example, if I if I drive a Buick, see, that's OK. But if you drive a Mercedes, nah, no, no, man, that's kind of a luxury. I don't know. It's kind of a waste of money. A person not a good steward, most probably. Now, usually you and I will draw that line and we will always draw it just a little bit above where we are. See, well, where we're at, it's okay, it's okay to do this. But see, now if you go a little bit beyond this, I don't know about that. Uh, it's to be enjoyed, gifts from God are to be enjoyed, by, from, uh, from Him to be enjoyed accordingly. They're to be appreciated, stewarded well, uh, but not to be judged in someone else's life. The real issue is, is that heart issue that I have. What's in the, 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 the center uh, f- for me, is it things, the desire for acquisition, or is it God? Is it I'm desperate for you? As I was singing that this morning, I was thinking, Oh Lord, may this be this so. May this be so for me on a regular basis. The First Chronicles twenty nine. 
That was kind of a parenthetical thing. First Chronicles 29. Giving you the context of this, King David has uh, basically pushed the borders out of Israel. Uh, land has got a relative amount of peace right now. He's doing pretty good. He's getting to the end of his days. Uh, he went to Jerusalem and he built this massive palace for himself. It's just a massive thing. It's, it's gorgeous, wonderful. And one day he's looking at his palace. Wow. And then he looks across the street and he sees the tabernacle. Do you remember what the tabernacle was, right? Uh, about 500 years earlier, uh, Moses got the diagram for the tabernacle. They built this thing. It was a tent-like structure, and it really it housed the Ark of the Covenant. It was, it was God's house. And so he's looking at, at his palace. Wow. And then he looks at this tabernacle. This thing's a 500-year-old tent. I mean, it's got to be worn out a little bit. He's going, ah, this thing's an eyesore in the neighborhood. And he's looking at his, his, his palace going, wow. And he's looking at the, the, the tabernacle. And he's going, ah. So he's got this great idea. So he says, God, listen, I've got a great idea. Can I, can I build you a house? I mean, I'm pretty important and all, and I've got a nice house. But I mean, you're God. And you've got a tent. Can I, can I build you a house? And God says, not a bad idea, David. But listen, you're a man of, of bloodshed. Too much blood on your hands from all your warfare. So your boy can build me the house. And so this is so much in David's heart. He says, yeah, yeah, but God, I mean, okay, but can I make preparations for it? And God says, okay. So David hires an architect and a builder and he gets the plans and he starts his massive capital campaign. And in First Chronicles 29, we find this massive capital campaign going on. And I don't know if I have a slide for this one, but verse three, let me give you this verse three. It says, besides in my devotion to the temple of my God. I now give my personal treasures of gold and silver for the temple of my God over and above everything I have provided for this holy temple. 3,000 talents of gold. It goes on. Now, this is amazing to me. A couple reasons. 3,000 talents of gold. That's about 190 tons of gold. That's about $7 billion at today's prices. And this is his personal cash. He didn't just empty the treasuries of the state on this one. He went to his own bank account. What's amazing is King David, though he died as king, he died personally penniless. Because he emptied his own accounts. He's like the opposite of the rich young ruler, isn't he? He, he gave everything. Now, why this is difficult for us is sometimes I mean, we want to be a tithing church. I mean, that's the goal. We want to push for that. Um, but, but it's, 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 it's a challenge, right? Because you make a buck and you can give a dime and, and you make 10 bucks and you give a dollar and you make 100 and you can give 10 and you make 1,000 and you can give 10, right? And, and, you, and you make 10,000 and you give 10. And it, you know, it's, just, it's just a challenge. But if you ever get there, it's like, yes, I'm there. I'm there. I gave God his cut. I got my cut. What am I going to talk about before or after taxes? Don't even want to go down that road right now. But I gave God his cut, and I've got my cut, and now we're okay. And I must be a godly person, but not so fast. Remember what he asked of the rich young ruler. Remember what you saw from King David here. Remember uh, the widow who gave everything. Remember Zacchaeus gave 50%. Remember the rich young ruler. You know, the rich young ruler probably tithed. He was committed to the law. He was well committed to the law. He went over and over with Jesus. He probably tithed. But still, you can tithe, but still that compartment in your heart may still be filled with that desire to acquire. Well, David goes on here in verse, verse 10 of 1 Chronicles 29. David prayed, uh, praised the Lord in the presence of the whole assembly, saying, Praise be to you, O Lord. 
God of our father Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor for everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name. But who am I and who are my people that we should be able to give as generously as this? Everything comes from you and we have given you only what comes from your hand. Then he goes on in verse 16. He says, oh, oh, Lord, our God, as for all this abundance that we have provided for building you a temple for your holy name, it comes from your hand and all of it belongs to you. The principle is this. One hundred percent of everything is from God and is for God, not just 10 percent. 10 percent is is a practical outworking of that. But the realization, the mindset that we've got to acquire, the mindset that David had is all of it is his. All of it is from him and all of it is to be used for him. My job is to steward. I am not the owner. I am the manager. That's where it has to be. Now, Bob Buford, in his uh, best-selling book, Halftime, he talks about this. I mean, he's a Christian guy and he took this moderately... uh, useful cable television station and he turned it into this enormous you know profit profit uh, factory where where he was living high on the hog he's driving his jaguars uh, flying from from luxury home to luxury home christian guy neat guy but he said that one day he was just he realized that he wasn't content he wasn't happy something was not right and so what did he do what Maybe some uh, well-off business guys do when they get in this situation. He hired a business consultant to come into his life and spend some time with them. And the guy he hired, when he went after the best, Mike Cammy, a self-proclaimed atheist, has an incredible string of, of dealing with some very major clients, helping them focus. And so Cammy listens and talks to, to Bob Buford for a couple hours. And then Cammy asks him, he said, hey, Bob, what's in your box? And Bob Buford said, what are you talking about? I don't know what you mean. And Cammie says, well, listen, let me give you an illustration. I was working with Coca-Cola at one point and I was with their with their directors. And, and they, they I asked them what's in their box. What is their mainspring? What is what is their non-negotiable? What are they all about? And they thought for a while and they said, great taste. And so they came up. Remember this, this taste test that Coca-Cola started going a while back? And then they, they re- retooled the, the, the recipe for Coke to have a better taste. And when it hit the market, Coca-Cola stock dro- dropped tremendously. And every, it was like one of the biggest blunders in, in business history. And so they called Kemi back in and they said, what's the problem? And he said, well, obviously you put the wrong thing in the box. What's in the box? So they started thinking about this and they said, you know, when we messed with the recipe of Coke, it was like messing with motherhood or apple pie or something. And, and they came to the conclusion after hours of debate that their, their thing in the box for them was American tradition. That's what we were. That's what, that's what Coca-Cola is. It's American tradition. So they came up with their classic Coke recipe back and they put it back on the market. And suddenly their stock jumped back. And, and so Cammy looked at Buford and he said, OK, listen, Bob, we've talked for a couple hours and you shared everything with me. I can tell you what's in your box. It's either money or Jesus Christ. 
Now you tell me which one it is, and I'll be able to tell you the implications of that decision. But unless you determine it, you will oscillate in confusion for the rest of your life. And Buford said nobody had ever challenged him like that. And so for a few moments, felt like hours, he thought this thing through. And then he said, well, listen, if I have to make a decision, I'm putting Jesus Christ in my box. And he goes on to say this. He says, uh, years later, Buford said, to put Christ in the box, I found, is actually a paradox. It's to break down the walls of the box and allow the power and grace of his life to invade every aspect of your own life. It follows the same wonderfully inverted logic as Christ's ancient assertion that's in giving that one receives. In our weakness, we're made strong and in dying, we're born to richer life. I choose to make Christ my primary loyalty and found that he did not insist upon exclusive attention. I still had loyalties to my wife, to work, to friends and projects. Now Christ became the center of all that, but in a way that gave my life balance and wholeness. So let me ask you the same question that Cammie asked Buford. What's in your box? Not you going to church. Not, not, I'm not even asking you tithing. Remember, we're, we're not talking about giving with this, this whole series. We're talking about how to live it. What's in your box? What's in the center of your heart? Is it a loyalty to Christ? Is it a, a desire to acquire as we would think through uh, this in this series, how to have the mindset of God in our personal finances, we start off with really three, three understandings, right? First one is that God does not want anything from us, like we have something we could give him, but he wants everything for us. Number two uh, that is that consumption does not equal contentment, and that's probably the most countercultural one here. And then third, 100% of everything belongs to him are is from him and for him. Pray with me. Lord, it is our desire. God, it's my desire to get a handle on this. I would pray, Lord, that with all the temptations and all the, uh, it seems, energy that hell is amassing to trip us up on this, God, would you remind us over and over again that you don't, you're not trying to get anything from us. You don't need anything from us. You just desire things for us. You desire us to have a life of significance. Would you remind me of that, God? Would you remind myself and my brothers and sisters here every day, even this week, that consumption does not equal contentment? And God, would you remind us always that everything we do have has come from your hand. It's from you. And it's for you, in the name of Jesus. Amen.